And I agree, he would not. He would do everything he could to keep man out of hell, even if it meant sending his only son to die in their place for them. And that's exactly what he's done. He loved you so much that he sent his only son to die in your place and in mine. And the Bible, the book of Hebrews says that he is our surety for our salvation. And because the truth of the matter is you and I fail, God, don't we? We still sin. That old nature rears up inside of us and we still sin. But every time that the, ad, the, uh, the old accuser comes and stands before God and begins to accuse us of that, our advocate, which is Jesus Christ, stands up and says, it's already been paid on Calvary. And I took his place. And boy, I'll tell you, if that doesn't cause us to love God more, I don't know what should. I don't think the world ought to ever get any more excited about anything that they have than a Christian does about their salvation. And boy, what a joy it is to have a Savior like that, to have a God like that. And God certainly is good. I'll tell you, He's been good in the past. He continues to be good. And I'm thankful that He's not just because He does good things, but it's part of His character. It's part of who He is. He is good. And He's a just God. He has to demand penalty on sin. But He's also a loving God and a merciful God. And, uh, boy, I'm thankful this morning that he died on the cross to save me from my sin. If you're here this morning, you say, I've never trusted in that. Can I tell you, this is super easy. You just have to just say, Lord, I put my faith and trust in you. Not in myself, not in my works, not what I've done. But I put it strictly in you in the shed blood on Calvary. And ask him to be your Savior. And he's promised that he would. He's promised that he would. And uh, hope that you get that matter settled today. For those that are Christians, we can rejoice in that, can't we? Have you ever thought about it? The gospel, in a nutshell, really is an offensive thing in the first half of it, isn't it? It's pretty offensive. Nobody likes to be called a sinner, do they? I don't like to be called a sinner. I know I am one, but I don't like to be called one. And yet the Bible calls us all sinners, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, if it stopped right there, we'd all kind of hang our heads in shame knowing that it's telling us the truth about ourselves. It's kind of uh, offensive to us when it says that in order to pay for that sin, we have to die and go to hell. I'm thankful the gospel doesn't end there. The Bible teaches us, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even though the wages of our sin is death, I'm so thankful that it goes on to say the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, what a Savior. What a Savior. He had to reach pretty far down for some of us, didn't he? But I'm thankful he did. Well, that's not the message this morning. Sometimes it does us good to just rejoice in who God is. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We started our series last week. In uh, the topic of this, uh, the subject of Nehemiah and rebuilding of the walls, arising and building. And we mentioned just by way of background, we've got a few new folks here, so we're just going to review quickly to bring you up to speed, and then we'll jump into chapter 2 this morning. But the book of Nehemiah is basically divided into two halves. The first half of it is Nehemiah leading the people to rebuild the walls and the uh, restoring the gates of the city of Jerusalem that had been destroyed uh, now several times. In fact, uh, the people, the residue of the people that were left behind had tried to rebuild the walls and really had gotten them pretty close to a point of completion. And then some of the opposition in the area, those people that didn't like um, 
the Israelites came and uh, burned the walls again and, and, and destroyed the walls again on them. And Nehemiah gets word of this in the first chapter. And he's sorrowful about it. He begins to weep and to fast and to pray. And by the way, uh, we ought to ask the Lord to open our eyes to the world that we live in today. And that we will see our world the way that the Lord Jesus Christ sees it. With a broken heart. With the fact that there are people that we pass and cross paths with every single day of our lives that more than likely are dead, are dying and on their way to hell and have never heard the gospel or have never heard it clearly enough to accept it. And we have opportunity to share it with them. It ought to break our hearts, the condition our world is in. It ought to cause us as Christians to pray and to ask for the Lord to give us opportunity to share the gospel. And so Nehemiah hears of the condition of his people in his city in chapter number 1. The Bible says it causes sorrow in his heart, causes him to weep and to fast. And then he goes to the Lord in prayer. And he prays a prayer, and we looked at the prayer last week a little bit, how that he not only asks for forgiveness for the people of Israel, but he also asks for forgiveness of the sins of his own father's house and even of himself. It's easy for us many times to pray for others' conditions and the shortcomings they have, but it's difficult many times for us to look inwardly at our shortcomings and for us to ask the Lord to help us in those areas. I've said before, some of the biggest sins there are are the sins that other people have. They're never mine. <laughs> My sins are the little ones, right? At least that's the way we think. We think our sins are the small ones and everybody else's are the big ones. The truth of the matter is, they all are repulsive to the Lord God. And it ought to break our hearts when we fail Him. And Nehemiah prays and asks for forgiveness. And he asks the Lord to remember the covenant that he made with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, that he would be with them if they would draw nigh to him. And on behalf of the nation of Israel, Nehemiah begins to beseech God and to say, Lord, we want to draw our hearts close to you again. That brings us to chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence, wherefore the king saith unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste? And the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? I want to stop there and we'll get into the message this morning and pick up reading from there. Father, we thank you that you hear us, that you answer prayers. Lord, there's a vital truth in this passage this morning that is so quickly and soon forgotten in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that... For the next few moments, we'll lay aside the things that we came in here with that might distract us, perhaps any cares or burdens or maybe activities or future plans that we have. And Lord, for the next few moments, I pray that you would help our hearts to be focused wholly and completely on your word and the truth of it. Lord, help us not to miss what you would have for us this morning from this passage. 
bless the message and Lord uh, enable us to get the points and the truth across clearly. And then, Father, to do something that I cannot do, and that is work on the hearts with that truth. Lord, help us to see the need of it, to apply it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah is an ordinary man. He's a cupbearer to the king, and there's really nothing of importance about him. He's not what you would call a prophet in that he, he's not been set aside or chosen by God to be a prophet. He's not operating in the capacity of a priest. Yet God looks down and sees an ordinary man and chooses him to do his work. And we said it last week that Nehemiah was an ordinary man, but he had an extraordinary God who did extraordinary things through him. I want you to notice at the onset of this book that one of the things that allows God to work extraordinarily through Nehemiah is the fact that Nehemiah, first and foremost, is a man of prayer. Multiple times throughout this book, you will find that when Nehemiah comes to a place where there's a problem or a burden or a valley in his life, or maybe in need of direction from the Lord of what he should do next, or how he should um, lead or manage the people there, or how he should operate in the work that's going on there, you'll find that at the onset and at the first thing that, that Nehemiah does is that he goes to the Lord in prayer. When chapter 1, when he saw that uh, the walls were broken down and he had gotten word of that from his friend, the first thing that he does is he goes to the Lord in prayer. Now, chapter 1 takes place almost three months before chapter 2 takes place. We get to chapter number 2, and this is interesting to note that Nehemiah becomes a point, or gets to a point in his life where the king is going to offer him some things. And yet, the first thing that Nehemiah does is he goes to God in prayer. We find it in chapter 1, we find it in chapter 2, we find it in Nehemiah chapter 4, we find it in Nehemiah chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 13. We'll find prayers of Nehemiah. When he's put into a place of decision and a point where he's at a crossroads and has to make a right choice, the first thought on his mind is, I must go to the Lord in prayer. How often in our lives do we, uh, we come across some things that we need direction and maybe just some wisdom making a decision? Or perhaps there's some need that we have in our life that uh, God needs to supply. And uh, we try to do things and, and fix things on our own. We try to muddle our way through it. And then when we've made a complete mess out of it, it seems like those are the times that we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I've made a complete mess of this. Can you help me through it? The truth of the matter is we ought to make the approaching God the forethought of our lives and rather than the afterthought of our lives. When we wake up in the morning, one of the the prayers on our hearts and on our lips ought to be, Lord, will you guide me through this day? Give me the wisdom that I don't have to make the decisions in the way that would be honoring to you. That we would, in any moment of decision, be able to immediately bow our heads and to begin praying and saying, Lord, I need some discernment in this situation. Instead of waiting till the valleys come for us to pray at the beginning of them and to say, Lord, I need some help through this. 
Why is it that in the day and age that we live as Christians, believing God to be who He is and having all of the resources at His disposal and believing that He is an omniscient God who knows all things and an omnipotent God who is all-powerful and an omnipresent God who is all places at all times, everywhere, seeing everything, and we claim to believe these things, and yet when we get into the pickles of our lives, it seems like He gets pushed to the back burner. That, Lord, if I can't handle this in my life, I'll come to you. But until then, you stay right over there in a convenient place for me. Nehemiah was not one of those kind of Christians. Nehemiah was the type of person that when it was time for a decision, he came to God. And he began to pray. He stands before the king as we get to chapter 2. And the Bible says in verse number 1 that, uh, the time was come for him to be the taster of the wine, the cupbearer to make sure it wasn't poison, that nobody was going to assassinate the, the king. And it says in verse number 1, I want you to see this, the character of Nehemiah. Because the Bible says here in verse number 1, Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. It was common practice and custom of the day that those that were in the king's court were not allowed to have a sad, sad countenance on their face. It literally could result in the death sentence if you were to come into the king's presence. Because when you went into the king of Persia's presence, the idea was that that king is all sufficient for anything you have in your life. Therefore, there is nothing to be sad about. And if you express sadness in the presence of the king, then you're saying, oh king, you do not have all sufficiency in my life. There's not everything that I can look to you for and rest in that you'll meet that need. And that was the tradition of the day for a secular king. And it was demanded of his subjects that when they came into his presence that their countenance be one of joy and one of satisfaction. That in you, O king, we find everything that is necessary for our lives. And I tell you this, that as God's people, we don't have to come to an earthly king and put on airs that he is all sufficient, but we have the king of all kings. And there ought not ever be a time in a Christian's life that we ever are in the presence of Almighty God with a crestfallen face. Because the truth of the matter is, you and I both know that he is all sufficient for everything that we have in our lives. How in the world could we ever be sorrowful about the things that are happening in our life when He is all-sufficient. For you see, we either believe Him or we don't. We either rejoice in the fact that it doesn't matter what the circumstance or the problem is. I know the God of the circumstance. I know the God that is all-sufficient for everything that I need. And we either believe Him and take Him at His Word or we say, no, King of kings and Lord of lords, I really don't trust you for everything in my life. I think it's a sad commentary that God's people are not more joyful in their daily lives. I think it's sad that the world cannot see in the day and age that you and I live the light that is not hidden under a bushel. The city that is set up on a hill. I, I, I fear that many times the world looks at those that claim to be Christians and claim to be children of God 
And they look at them and they see their crestfallen countenances and they hear their, their complaining of all the things that they don't have or all the things that are going wrong in their life. And they look at that and they say, if you have an all-sufficient God, which you claim to have, and that's all the more He can do for you, I don't want Him. God's people of all people ought to be glad in the presence of the King. Nehemiah had not been before time sad in this presence of this earthly Persian king. But he's so heartbroken. In verse 2, he says, Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad? Seeing thou art not sick, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Nehemiah said then, I was very sore afraid. This particular king is a very compassionate king out of all the kings of Persia that I know of, probably one of the only ones that would have responded this way. For you see, most of them would have been hardened enough to say, you're out of my presence and take him to the executioner. But this man had compassion on him. And we find a valuable Bible principle here. The heart of the king is in the Lord's hands. For you see, Nehemiah is getting ready to do something extraordinary for God. And God comes to the king and says, King, give him what he wants. Oh, what a God. You and I have no need to fear. You say, Brother Greg, what if God doesn't come through for me? I like what Paul said. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I remember reading of an evangelist one time who was preaching the gospel, and somebody came to his office and threatened him with his life. And he chuckled as the man pointed a gun at him and he said, You can't threaten me with heaven. We're Christians, we're the child of the king. What do we have to be sad about? What do we have to be afraid of? For if the Lord be with us, if God be with us, who can be against us? The Bible teaches us that not even the principalities and powers can touch us without Him allowing it. We find that Nehemiah is very sore afraid. And he said unto the king in verse number 3, Let the king live forever. By the way, can I say this? This isn't part of the message. We're going to hold your place here a minute. We're going to come back to it. But can I say this? We need to see God for who He really is. We have such a limited view of God. He's not the old man upstairs. He's not the good old boy. But He is the King of all heaven and earth. And He is the Lord of our life whether we choose to admit it or yield to it or not, the Bible teaches that one day, whether we want to or not, every knee will bow to Him. And every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Wouldn't it be far better if we just go ahead and do it now? Oh, that we would look to our God in heaven and say, Oh God, Thou art my God. 
Early will I seek thee. If we would say, O King, King of all heaven, live forever. What was Nehemiah saying? He was saying, King, you are all there is. He was giving him his rightful place, showing reverence and respect. We've raised a generation and now a generation that's been raised by a generation of folks who were not taught to reverence God. We think too little of Him. Nehemiah in verse number 3 says, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lie waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? I'm not going to take a long time on verse 3 other than to say this. It ought to be shameful for a Christian not to see and to understand the condition that our lost world is in. And it ought to be a shame for Christians not to be heartbroken over it. If we've lost our tears, if we've lost our compassion for the lost, we ought to get on our faces before God and say, Lord, give it back to me. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? There was a priest that came along. and The Bible says when he saw him from a distance, he passed by on the other side. Unconcerned at all. And then a Levite comes by and the Bible says after he had looked on him, this Levite at least had paused and given some consideration to what he was seeing. But he passed on too, didn't he? The Levite was concerned for him. But then comes along the Samaritan. And he looks on him. And he does something about it. And the difference between the Samaritan and the Levite and the priest is that the Levite and the priest may have had concern for the man. But the Samaritan had compassion on him. And folks, can I tell you, there is a difference among God's people of being concerned for our world and having compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on them. The Apostle Paul loved his people so much that he wished that he would be accursed, that his own countrymen might be saved. Nehemiah is saddened by the condition of his people. In verse number 4, the Bible says, Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? For what dost thou make request? What a great statement. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews chapter 5 that we're to come boldly to the throne of grace. Ever since Calvary, you and I have direct access to God. We don't have to come to Him through a priest. We don't have to come and confess our sins to a man. We can go straight to God and ask forgiveness. We don't have to go to somebody and petition our God through some other person. We can go straight to the Father of Heaven as one of His children and say, Lord, I have need. 
We find here as we get to verse number 4 that the king says, what are you asking me for, Nehemiah? Now, I want you to notice this because this to me is amazing. We're talking about the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world at the time, a world empire. We're talking about a king that from a human sense and a materialistic stance had all of the resources that Nehemiah would ever need and then some. And he's asking Nehemiah, what do you need? I, I would like to think that I would be like Nehemiah in this situation, but to be honest with you, I don't know. Until I was in this situation, I don't know how I would respond. I, I don't know if I would be so enamored by the gloriousness of this human king who had all power and all wealth as far as I could see, offering for me to ask what I will of him with the idea that he will provide it. I like what Nehemiah does. Look with me in verse number 4. Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? Watch what he says. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah was not as concerned about what that king could offer him as much as he was about what the king of all kings could offer him. Why is it we put so much dependence on people in this earthly life and give very little dependence upon the God of heaven? I don't know how I would act. I would hope that I would go and say, King, I appreciate it, but hang on a minute. I need to talk to the King of all kings first. Now, if He tells me to come to you, I'll come to you, but... I want to follow Him first. I would love to be able to say I could do that. I don't know. I wonder if I'd be so excited that this King has opened up His storehouses to meet the need that I'm asking for. I might be so enamored by that that I just start laying it out. Here, King, here's what I need. But Nehemiah says, wait a minute. God has opened this opportunity for me. He's the one I'm going to seek first. The one I'm going to seek first. You remember the story in Luke chapter 9 when three different men come to the Lord and they say, Lord, we will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. But, and each one of them has an excuse, don't they? As a young person, I thought then they weren't willing to follow God, and that's wrong. All three of them were willing to follow God. Their problem was not being willing to follow God. Their problem was not being willing to follow God first. First. It amazes me how many times in working with teenagers, I would ask the young people, are you coming to the youth rally? Are you going to come to the youth conference? How many times I heard an answer like this? Well, if I don't have something else going on. And what they were saying is, Brother Greg, I'm, I'm interested in the things of God and I'm willing to follow Him. But not first. First, I have some plans. 
first I have some things I want to do. Then, when I have time and when I can fit God into my schedule, I'll give a little bit more to God. And folks, bear with me for a minute. I'm going to be real transparent with you. I'm not saying this because as a pastor I want people to show up on Sunday night and Wednesday night so that we can mark our board and say, oh, we had so many on Sunday night and Wednesday night. I am not at all about that. But I will tell you this. It's hard for me to watch God's people knowing that we have opportunity to come and to draw closer to the Lord and to hear His Word preached and to sing songs and to fellowship with His people to say, I've got something more important to do at that time. I have a hard time with that. Nehemiah comes to the Lord. Even though the king has offered him whatever it is, Nehemiah comes to God. We'll stop there for today and we'll pick up there next week because the next few verses we've got to give time to do justice to them. Folks, can I tell you, God's Word is a wealth of principles. If we'll simply squeeze all the juice out of it, learn things from it. There are some things that we've been given in chapter 2 in these first four verses alone that ought to cause a spirit of revival to well up in our hearts. If our hearts have grown cold towards the things of the Lord, there are things here that ought to cause us to say, Lord, I need to get those things right. I need to draw close to You once again. Oh, I need to see this world the way that You see it, Lord. Pray that God would give us a compassion again for the lost. That we would become a people of prayer. That we would seek God first. Let's stand together, if you would, please, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word and what it teaches and what it gives to us. Lord, what a joy it is to our hearts to read and to know and to understand Your will in these matters. Lord, You've given us this book for no other reason than to be a help and an encouragement to us. That it would be profitable to us. And Father, I pray that You would help us to look and to see these Bible principles and that if there are some that are lacking or things that we've not considered or put into practice in our hearts or in our lives, that You would draw us to a point of decision. And Father, some are maybe sitting here this morning at a crossroads. The Christian life is so simple, Lord. The psalmist said it this way, Oh, that my ways were Thy ways. Father, we're at a crossroads right now of choosing either my way or Your way. I pray that You would help us to choose the right one. There may be some that have grown cold in their Christian lives and maybe have gotten to a point where they've been saved for so long They've heard it all preached before. They've sat in Sunday schools and maybe even taught Sunday schools. And, but there's no fire. There's no enjoyment. There's no excitement about the Christian life because, Lord, we've lost our view of You. 
We don't have a passionate walk with you in a time that we spend with you. And Lord, I pray that you would help to stir that up again in our hearts. That each and every day, the most important part of our day is the time that we spend with you. Lord, if there's someone here that's not saved, we've given the gospel, we've shared it at the onset of the message. I pray that you would help them to see that need, that your Holy Spirit would bring great conviction on their heart, that they would not leave here without coming and talking with us, allowing us the opportunity to take your word and show them how they can be saved. And then, Father, for those that are saved, Lord, I pray that you would draw us closer to you that every single day we would be drawn closer to You, that we would be growing and thriving in the Christian life, that this world can see our lives and glorify our Father which is in heaven. That people can hear not just a message from our lips, but they can hear from our actions what a great God we have. From our countenance, from our attitudes, with great joy, of who you are. Bless the invitation time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With heads bowed, please, and eyes.